If corporate said we should use it, if those people that live in the office say we should use it, then it must be terrible, <laughs> you know, automatically, right? So there's definitely like bias around that. So I, so I think the strategy has to be building guardrails to let people have autonomy. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Great Tech Group. You're invited to join our conversation to model the future of construction innovation and the digital transformation adventure of this great industry. My guest today is KP Reddy. He's the founder and CEO of Shadow Ventures, a seed stage technology investment firm. He's a globally recognized authority in AEC environments, AI, robotics, automation, mobile applications, and cloud computing. He's also a frequent lecturer at Georgia Tech and is a sought after subject matter expert, frequently speaking worldwide on BIM and the built environment. Welcome to the show, KP. Hey, Todd, how's it going? It's going well, it's going well. So how did you get into the world of construction to begin with? I'll start with that, but just to be clear, my bio, that bio you read out is about 10 years old. So I didn't just add AI on it today. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> the, the buzzword of the moment. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's an old bio. Um, how did I get into the, you know, I'm a second generation civil engineer. Um, and at some point in high school, um, kind of early, um, early days of high school, my dad bought an IBM PC and said, do something with it. So started programming for him on it. Um, and then from there, really started learning how to do stuff in the field, everything. I think I was surveying by the time I was 14 and could inspect rebar when I was 15. Um, so just kind of grew up in the business, so to speak. And then, um, then went to school at Georgia Tech, started off as aerospace. And then they told me that I'd have to get a master's degree and go work for the government, not make much money. So that, that didn't seem like... Doesn't Something. sound like much fun. Yeah. Like it's not a good fun. sales pitch. Yeah. Two more years of school and drudgery and you make uh, something around minimum wage. Um, so ended up uh, transferring into civil. So, you know, did that and worked as a civil engineer and um, that's how I got into it. Now, how did, what was the transformation like going from civil engineering into uh, construction technology? Um, well, so my first startup, um, so one, I had the benefit of when I was at Georgia Tech, my advisor was the first one to put classes on the internet, kind of 1992. And I was like his coding monkey. So I uh, got early exposure there. And then I started a tech startup when I, in 1997, which I was know. construction management on the web. Um, so I was already, always, I was already like writing code and doing stuff, you know, nights and weekends. Um, but I launched that company and, um, we started to run out of money when the contractors told me the internet was like for entertainment purposes and had no, had no real use in, uh, in business. It was for play and, uh, pivoted into telecom and, uh, was super fortunate. The telecom people were a little bit more enlightened than that. And, uh, was able to grow that company from two people to 1200 and take it public and all that good stuff. Yeah. Nice. It's funny how, uh, short-sighted we can be stuck in our own little bubbles and not seeing the, the big tsunami wave coming at you. Uh, how would you define a, a successful technological transformation, especially for construction? Like currently what's been? Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What yeah. does it look like to you on how to do that? Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, 
it's it's really interesting because I think you know we we look at this we, we say construction and it's it's like this monolith, right? Um, and when we're working with the very large firms, their idea of innovation and transformation is very different uh, than the person running around in, in a truck and has a shoebox full of receipts from Home Depot, right? So that we, we can define all of that as construction. Um, but I, I do think, um, you know, we went from, for those of you that are maybe around my age, the, the Nextel phone and the push to talk feature was probably the most innovative thing in its time for job sites. Mm -hmm. You know, you no longer had local radio bands. It was literally your cell phone was also a walkie talkie and you saw people, um, the equivalent of group chats were setting up group messaging on that and you could broadcast to a group of people what was going on. Um, and so that was like the beginning of call it improved communication from the job site versus running over to the job trailer, getting paged, maybe running over to the job trailer. And then from there, you know, we just went to the Blackberry and the smartphone. And I think you go to a job site now and there's, I don't think there's people with flip phones. Maybe there are. Um, and then you start seeing like how people are using smartphones to communicate. Um, you know, one of the highest used apps on a job site is WhatsApp. So even though it may not be corporate sanctioned or whatever, the crews are talking to each other via WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, th I think that's been, a, 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 you know, we take it for granted. You know, if you're not on a job site every day, we take all these devices for granted, but um, I think that's, a, it's, it's had a bigger impact than people. Yeah. They kind of gloss over it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, a recent guests said the, the line that I thought was really good around innovation that you, you can't compare innovations against each other, that what's innovative, you know, you said about the, the construction, we, we group them all together, but that's a big range in there. And what's innovative for the, you know, Fortune 500 is going to be drastically different than what's innovative for the guy in the truck to your point on, uh, you know, that has the, the receipts in the box. That, that's a big range and uh, you got to keep on making kind of those, those small steps, no matter where you are on that journey, you yeah. can still be innovative. You don't have to go all the way to the, the deluxe Cadillac package mm -hmm. for the guy in the truck. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is uh, a challenge right now? Kind of hindering progress in the industry on the, the technological side. Yeah, I think um, on the tech side, you know, when, when you have nascent markets, you have um, the formation of incumbent software players. And those incumbent software players tend to take market share. And the incremental, incremental benefit for them to invest more money into innovation versus just milk the, the markets that they're in, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's, you know, these are public companies whose job, CEO's job, is to turn revenue into earnings. Like, that's their job. Right. So um, so you can't fault them for running a, a good business. But what happens is the market gets ensconced in these platforms and it's really hard. The, the switching costs are re really hard for them. Not 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 from a money perspective, per se, mm -hmm. but from an intellectual perspective, from a training perspective. You know, um, we saw it in the 90s with SAP. And Oracle, you know, they just kind of owned the markets in the ERP space, and, and it became really hard for 
really until Salesforce came along, was it really hard to get into these enterprises um, because they'd kind of gotten settled in. So I think we're, we're, we're dealing with that right now where um, it's really hard for, for really progressive innovation. You know, companies that are judged on being innovative and being differentiated, um, like that's all they worry about, um, finding space in, in the technology stack. Mm. Um, you know, the Procore's Autodesk, et cetera, et cetera, right? Name, name the list. Um, they're not really worried about product differentiation anymore, right? They don't have to. It's not, it's, right. that's not the job. So I think it's that that's what's really you're starting to see is like how do new white spaces get created so that you can actually deliver innovation, you know, at its best and at, at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you bring up an interesting uh, point too on that. There's, there's so much technology coming out and, and coming at people, especially in construction right now, mm -hmm. uh, that it, it can easily fall into the, the technology fatigue. W what are some kind of telltale signs for you of people that are starting to, to lean into that technology fatigue? And then what are some strategies that organizations can really adopt to alleviate that fatigue among their staff? Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's this weird double-edged sword, sword, right? It, by its sheer virtue, construction, um, you give people a lot of autonomy, right? The superintendent, the project engineer, whoever, um, is given, you know, the, the leadership says, deliver me, a, deliver the project on time, on budget, and you get to keep your job. And I might throw you a couple of bucks as a bonus. Like, that's the job. Um, but they're not as quick to dictate the how. And in fact, we see this interesting dynamic when quote unquote corporate dictates to the field, you shall use X product. Mm. They don't agree like automatically. If corporate said we should use it, if those people that live in the office say we should use it, then it must be terrible, <laughs> you know, automatically. Right. So yeah. there's definitely like bias around that. So, so I think the strategy has to be building guardrails to let people have autonomy. Um, and, and we've built these programs before for especially large general contractors is make it very collaborative, build it, build guardrails around their, around what they can use and almost create your own private app store. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand you don't want to use this one punch list tool because God knows, I mean, there's like thousands of punch list tools out there, right? There's just tons of them. Um, including the homegrown punch list tools, <laughs> right? That somebody built with Wufu forms or some nonsense, right? So yeah. you have all those things. So you kind of say like, I'm not going to mandate you use one, but you have to use one of these three. And, and we've curated these three through our teams in the field, the CIO, God forbid the CIO picked them because then automatically it's terrible, right? But we, we work with the field folks and these are the three that we narrowed it down to. And you just kind of, you guys need to stick to these three. Now, if you find something new that you think is better, happy to look at it. Like there is a process to drive change. And so I think it's that balancing of command and control uh, against like reckless autonomy that you have to balance against. Mm -hmm. Why is uh, achieving that consistency in, in workflows and having a, a, a limited tech stack, if you will, so pivotal for really scaling across not just the uh, an individual project, but across the company wide for a construction firm? Um, there's, there's a couple things. One, besides consistency and all that good stuff, 
when you work with small companies, um, there is inherent risk, you know, and from the time this airs, another half dozen tech construction tech startups will go out of business. There are literally like, because we, we get to know, right? it's my job to know. There are half a dozen startups that a year ago, oh my gosh, these people, they're the best. They're doing this. They raised around. They're done. Like they're out of business. They're done. And, and that's the risk you take. However, you can mitigate risk if you have a focused few, right? If you have, you know, so if you're deploying 20 tech startups across your stack, look, I'm in the venture business. One in 10 makes it. It's power law. That's the world. So if you have 20 apps across your stack, only two of those are going to be around in a few years. So how do you mitigate that risk? How do you understand like what my transition plan is? Like all those mm -hmm. things. And you can't do it. So at least if you have a chosen few and something goes awry, you can actually build a transition plan. You can, um, you know, there's one of the big corporates basically shut down all their, all their innovation products and shut down the companies and all the customers are left holding the bag. And they come to me like, hey, Pete, do you want to take it over? And I'm like, absolutely not. Like, just shoot it already. It's done. Um, and so I think um, that's part of the risk mitigation. If you're too fragmented with a lot of choices, it's, it's going to be really hard to mitigate risk. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. So let's speak to the leaders for a moment. How do they really champion and then rally their teams around this technological shift and, and get them not just begrudgingly using the, the tech stack, but excited about the tech step? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is you have to make them part of the process. You know, I'm, I'm super, I, I sit, I, I wake up every morning, um, just feeling grateful for the people I have around me. Right. I have almost a hundred LPs that are from the industry. I don't have to know. I mean, I, I know a lot, but I don't have to know everything. Mm. I have lots of people to lean on. Right. Mm. I can call 10 GCs tomorrow to ask like their, their CEOs, like, what do you think about? And I get like a text answer that day. Like, I mean, it's, it's super amazing. Right. But, and so I think it's so important to like collaborate, engage and, and listen to people. And if you're a CIO, I don't care how big a firm you are. Um, if you're not listening to the people in the field and the users, like let's not forget CIOs do not build buildings. They are a customer service organization to the people in the field. Mm -hmm. That's how they have to think and that's how they have to remember their position and what it takes to serve the customer. They're, you know, their clients are the people in the field, so they have to engage with them. It's like building a product without talking to your customer, right? It's just, it never gets anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that they engage with them and, and have that kind of client-centric view of their users. Hey, innovators. Do you want to help inspire the next generation of architects engineers, and builders, Applied Software Great Tech Group does too. In fact, they have launched a scholarship contest and need your help spreading the word. If you know any students or teachers who could benefit from the contest, tell them to visit asti.com slash AEC scholarship for more information. Applied Great Tech is giving away over $1,000 to help students pursue their dreams. And we need your help to make it happen. So what are you waiting for? Let's make a difference together.
Yeah. How do you start building in the the confidence then for the the tech stack? If you know, to to your point of of one in ten aren't around in, in a few years. And one in ten make it. But one in ten make it. I'm sorry. Yep. One <laughs> in ten make it. Ninety percent aren't around in a few yeah. years. How do you build the confidence that if if I'm going to invest my my time learning this new tech stack and and really diving into it, what's what's the kind of the the guarantee for me, or you know, what's in it for me if I'm just going to have to do this all again in another couple of years when the next hottest thing comes along? Well, I mean, there's um, the benefit of being able to use the innovation to make your life easier in the near term. Um, and, I, and I think, look, not every company should subject their sex should subject themselves to risk across their entire organization. That's why you pick and choose. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it if you ask yourself the question is like, what happens if we don't use this? And it's like, well, not much of anything. Then you should question whether you're, whether you're using it. If the answer is like, well, we're not going to get you more work or we might lose our, lose our shirts on a job. Then all of a sudden the risk is worth, is worth it. You know, it was right. like early days of BIM, right? Early days of BIM, nobody was convinced. Nobody was convinced. Period. Um, they're still not convinced, right? Yeah. They're still not convinced. It's like, it's it's an expensive drafting tool. Fantastic. Right. So, but um, like I said, there's still a lot of people that are unconvinced. Um, And I think you're, you're always going to deal with a little bit of that, but you know, what's the option? Well, the option was in 2003, four or five, whenever I was doing BIM stuff, you're not going to do work for the GSA if you can't do BIM. Well, I guess I better do BIM, right? Like, there, there, there is no question there. Now, if you're a firm that didn't do work for the GSA, maybe you said, I don't need to do BIM. I don't do work for the GSA. And so, you know, so I think it's, these are business decisions. They aren't technology decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's kind of double click into the, how do you implement the, the technology? Well, you're, you got the confidence, you're bought in, you have your, your kind of, limited tech stack, you got your guardrails up. What are some of the kind of fundamental building blocks that a company needs to have in place in order for the implementation to go as smoothly as as possible? So the number one thing that companies do poorly, that is the most important thing is communication. The minute the I'm, I'm saying down to the receptionist, if you call the receptionist and say, hey, what is your BIM strategy? The receptionist needs to know. Mm. Right. So when you're doing these new things, there's naysayers that actually don't believe in what's happening. They don't believe in it. And there's other people that are naysayers because they were left out of it. Like, well, I wasn't included. So it must suck. Right. So it's like bad attitude. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you clearly communicate in a predictable cadence, people start to buy in. They're not wondering, you know, um, hey, why does that guy not have to work on projects? (laughs) He's over there in the office all the time working on some AI, something or another. Right. The, The people that have to keep rowing the boat, look at the guys that are doing this innovation stuff. And say they're not rowing the boat. I'm paying their salaries. I, my job is producing the cash flow to pay for that person. And what are they doing? And so, number one, you got to communicate well, frequent, consistent, um, clearly, and transparently. 
Two, you have to educate people on the fire point, finer points. Mm-hmm. And then three, you have to create power user evangelists. And the challenge with power user evangelists in your organization is, unfortunately, the nerdier they are, the poorer evangelists they become. So you have to find people that are super balanced, that can speak English to the masses, that have the enthusiasm, that don't do the, I know something you don't know and you're a dumbass type attitude. Right. Right. Um, kind of that classic IT person persona, right? Right. Um, yeah, did so, you just restart? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Move over. Um, you know, that thing. So I think um, picking those power users that are going to evangelize uh, are, are super important. And, and I will tell you, there's this weird trend that you see the power users. They are spending more time speaking at conferences outside of their organization than within their organization. I either just like promoting themselves for their next job. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's important to have these folks have regular cadence and sessions in house to the team, you know, show and tell, whatever you call. So I, I think that all that stuff's important. But communication is the, the biggest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good gut check on the, the champion. Are they spending as much or more time internal championing it versus being out on the, the speaking circuit, if you will, that's a, it's a great gut check. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and on the, the communication angle, I more than agree with you. I think one of the, the big mistakes that a lot of construction companies make with technology adoption is they, they use the, the selling point that, you know, got the, the C-suite bought in on the product and they just use that same talking points to every single stakeholder throughout the company. And people don't care unless they're in that C-suite stuff, but the, the end user in the field, they're like, yeah, okay, well, it's good for this guy, but it's causing me, you know, an hour extra work every single day. Yeah. It's a pain in my neck. I, right. What's the benefit of, for, for me? Yeah. I'm glad Mr. CEO, you get your reports in a timely manner, but how does that, that helps me how? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. We got to be able to, to speak their language and, and hopefully if, if you know if you're doing it right and they're part of it on the beginning you already have what's gonna excite them and, and what they're they're looking for so you can you have those hooks that you can go to later when you're implementing it to say hey this is what you talked about when we were looking for a solution and here's the benefits that, that we found from this solution and they match up and that's when you really start to to hit that that power aspect of it uh let's kind of pivot a bit on uh not, not the, the technology adoption side, but go into the, the tech providers. How can competitors of, you know, you have your, your technology, how can you start uh, really collaborating with your competitor to help push the industry forward? And maybe should you even think about that, that space of, of the co-opetition? Um, you mean on the, on the, in the, like on the construction firm side? On the tech provider side. On the tech provider side. Yeah. Um, so the, the challenge is, I think the tech providers really have to think about earning their customer's business every day, right? And I think that's where people get very comfortable. You know, Microsoft got comfortable and then Google came along, right? 
there, there's lots of case studies around this. Um, and so I think there's this comfort that people get into. Um, and I think when it comes to collaborating, um, you know, we've talked about BIM interoperability. We've talked about all these things in the past, right? And, and none of it happens. Everybody kind of gives lip service, right? Bentley wants to protect their DOT government clients and Autodesk wants to protect their, you know, commercial clients. And what it, what it starts to become is paramount to a shared monopoly. Um, and they're okay with that, right? There is no incentive driver because every time one of them tries to edge into each other's spot, they get their hands smacked by the customers. They're like, oh, well, we invested $100 million to go into the government space and we got nowhere. Let's not do that again. Um, so I think, you know, interoperability and working together, I don't think it happens naturally. You can't, you know, you can't sit there and build a culture of saying, we have to win. We have to beat our competitors. Let's go. And then one day flip the switch, like, well, you know, we need to be more allies. Right. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah, my team has to remind me I'm, I'm, I'm hyper competitive, um, like un, unreal, unreasonably competitive. Right. Um, when I, I had taken a sabbatical for three years and was doing yoga twice a day, three weeks in, I'm like, how do I win? I don't understand. Like who's keeping score, right? <laughs> no, no, you don't keep score in yoga. I'm like, what do you mean? What's the point then? Right? <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. Like what's going on here? Um, I can totally do crow better than that guy. Like <laughs> right. why is his mat at the front of the room? <laughs> you know? So, um, so, so I think it's really hard to change that. I mean, you want competition. And what I would say is, I would be happier if the incumbents competed with each other than collaborated with each other. Mm. I would be more excited about that. I want them to go after each other because that makes both of them better and that helps the industry. The problem is cooperation in, in large markets can sometimes just create laziness, right? It's like, well, what do we have that's equal to what they have? Right. I don't yeah. think that's good for the industry. Yeah. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, competition across the board, no matter what space you are in, it, that it goes back to the, the iron sharpens iron aspect of it too, that when you go up against the best, you got to be the best in order to take them down. Uh, yeah. So you're going to be more focused on kind of back to where we, we started with the conversation. You're going to be focused on those innovative software features because you're going to have to, if you're going to go up against the best and, and try to outcompete them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Uh, how can industry leaders create, uh, in an environment that, that kind of then puts that, that competition in it in a healthy, you know, maybe friendly way, but how do you put that competition out front to say, no, we're, we're going to, we're putting our flag in the ground. We're, we're going to be the best here and we're going to go after it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have the good fortune of dealing with most of the industry leaders, right? Um, you know, we, we all get together once a year, uh, we, we get together in the next month at our summit and it's, it's like CEOs and we collaborate. And the reason we do it in October is because we try to set the agenda for next year. Like what areas should we be focused on as an industry? Right. So I get, you know, call 200 of our, our friends to show up and we talk about these things. Um, and I think what 
what the software industry is missing, the providers are missing, 0% of these CEOs are happy with them. 0%. They are like, this is what I have to deal with. This is what I have. This, I mean, and, and it's, you know, we can name the names, but it doesn't really matter because they're all the same. Like there's, there's none of them that are standing out. Right. Um, and they are starting to self-organize. They are starting to understand. They are starting to build plans to say, Hey, we need to get off this platform in five years. What's the strategy? Why are we working with a firm, with a technology provider that's really not helping us anymore. They're making it harder. And, and I'm, I'm probably the first one to kind of say, Hey, hold on. If all you're talking about them increasing their, if you're talking about price increases, and that is the crux of like why you're unhappy with them, you're focused on the wrong things, right? Um, if it's beyond that, then, then there's a conversation to be had. So they, they are self-organizing, right? Yeah. What do you think will get the attention of those tech providers to force change, if you will? They won't see it coming. It'll happen slow and happen, and, and then it'll it'll start slow and happen fast. Hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, I don't think Microsoft in the '90s thought, you know, you think they saw Apple as a threat? You think they saw Google as a threat? Nothing. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden. So I, I don't I don't think they have a move, right? I don't think they have a move. I think it's um, it's really going to be how they can they look inward and continue to innovate. I mean, if you look, I mean, Microsoft's a good example because if you look at Microsoft pre Satya Nadella days, it's a different company. Satya Nadella days is very different than pre Satya Nadella days, and it looks a lot more like Bill Gates days in terms of the focus on the right people. I mean, look, all these big tech companies in our space are out. You could cut half the staff, and nothing would change. They are massive jobs programs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think you're seeing with big tech, you know, Facebook lays off a bunch of people. Wow. Nothing changed. Right. I mean, Elon Musk got, got what, 90% of Twitter? I mean, I haven't complained about Twitter because <laughs> I, don't, I don't get on it that. Like, it's like it's, it, it works enough when I'm on it, right? Like right. it's good enough. And how much do I pay for it? Zero dollars. Fantastic. Right. Like, so I think there's definitely like big company bloat in all, in all these companies. And, you know, there's a hundred evangelists running around and market managers. I mean, the number of titles um, that don't actually drive revenue is astonishing, right? Core, core to startup world is you're either selling or building. Those are the only two jobs. There's no other jobs. Um, if you said, took the org charts of these big companies and had to put seller or, you know, seller or builder, that's maybe 20% of the company. Mm -hmm. The rest is just a bunch of people hanging around the hoop. So I think what they'll, they'll have to start figuring out is how do they get lean? How do they get the right people engaged in their organization that are actually going to go off and build stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So mm -hmm. as we look to the future, what, what excites you the, the most about the, the intersection of technology and construction and actually, you know, building the building? Yeah. So I think, you know, um, so if we look at two sides, right, we have designers, right, which are doing all kinds of wild stuff. I used to work for Frank Geary, so I know what wild looks like, right? And then you have builders. And the builders have said, 
hey, we're going to focus on industrialized construction. And we're going to focus on building things in factories because that's the future, which I, I, don't, I don't disagree with, right? The problem there is they've said, but we're going to only make three SKUs. We're not going to build a lot of things. We're only building hotel rooms. We're only building um, hospital rooms. And you get them in three, three layouts. That's what they look like, right? So they've had to optimize um, configuration and customization to a narrow, a, narrow, a narrow band. And then you have designers that say, okay, well, everything needs to be special and unique and, you know, iterative, right? It, you know, it's like SDs, DDs, CDs. We have to go through this process and that process of iteration of budget, you know, budget scope and need for the customer. That's what we're iterating through. And so these folks are working. So here's highly custom. Here's you get it in three colors kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is exciting is if you insert AI on the design stack and you insert robots on the manufacturing stack, now you have mass customization, which means you have the ability to have highly custom designs mass manufactured. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what's happening right now. That is the intersection of what's of what's happening. And, and that is tremendously exciting. You know, the idea that you can have a custom designed home that will be built in 90 days, cheaper and better, right? You know, so I, I was giving this AI uh, talk to, it was like the top 60 CEOs in the engineering space. Like, what do you think about AI? And they're like, what do you think about bias? I'm like, you mean like human bias? But I don't know, AI bias. I'm like, I can deal with AI bias, human bias, I don't know how to begin to solve for Right. They're like, what about these self-driving cars? They're running into people. I'm like, literally the curve of being a good driver, you're a terrible driver at 16. And about the time you become a great driver, you become a bad driver again when you're eight. <laughs> right? Machines only get better. Computers only get better. So if we think we're going to get, you know, you know, we're never going to be that. So when you think about the computers and robots, oh, they can't do this, they can't do that. They're going to be building Designing builder, designing cheaper and faster and better and, and understand the outcomes, right? A designer can't even design a building by identifying the operating costs. If I'm an owner and all I care about is operating costs, ask an architect, what are my operating costs going to be in year 10? They have no answers. In other words, come buy my car. I can't tell you what the service how often you have to get it serviced, and I can't tell you how many miles per gallon it'll give you, but trust me, you want you want this car. And so when you think about the power of, of what's happening on the design side with AI is to be able to run predictive models around design affecting operating costs, replacement costs, um, custom, you know, just being able to design on the fly. In other words, there is no DD and CD, there's only CD. And that CD is being pushed to a robot. And by the way, if the customer changes their mind a weekend, there's not an RFI and a change order. There's an updated command to the robot. So that's exciting to me is that you now have automation on both sides, yeah. on both sides of the of the dumbbell, so to speak. What do you think that timeline is to, to get to five that years. reality? Five really? years. Really? Nice. Yeah, uh-huh. That's awesome. So that's a very innovative centered around uh, most of the, the conversation today. What does innovation, what does that mean to you? Um, I like to steal the definition. 
Peter Diamandis wrote a great book called Abundance. And if you haven't read it, I always tell people, you should read it yourself and make your kids read it too. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, and if you don't know Peter Diamandis, he's uh, the X Prize guy. He's a fantastic human being. Um, so Peter wrote this book called Abundance. And in it, he says, um, innovation is something that takes something that was once scarce and makes it abundant. So the example he uses is like picking apples on a tree. You can only pick so many apples within reach and then somebody innovates a ladder and now you get to pick all the apples. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I, I read that and I said, you know what, this, this is the definition. <laughs> I don't care what, I'm just going to adopt it. This is the innovation. And so I think that's, you know, in our space, when you look at scarcity of resources, whether it's human resources, material resources, energy resources, that's what innovation is. How do you take something that is scarce and create abundance? That's what innovation does. Yeah, I like it. And I always love a good book recommendation. So I'll go check out that book for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, how do people find out more information on, on what you have going on and connect with you? Um, our venture uh, website is shadow.vc. Um, and our, I would say like our research and events um, website is shadowpartners.co. That's where you can find out more. Uh, Summit is, uh, it's super interesting. It's, it's definitely you have to apply. We, we curate who's allowed in and that kind of thing. Um, we have kind of like the no salesman rule. <laughs> so, um, so, but it's, it's a perfect venue if you're either C-suite or your full-time job is innovation and you are part of the strategic planning process, it's a great venue for you um, because literally people take copious notes and then go back as they start, you know, November strategic planning for the following year. They, they literally start citing the information they get at our summit to, to do that strategic planning. Yeah. Awesome. And that's happening in October. You said October, the, the yeah. summit. Yeah. Shadowsummit.com. Awesome. Very cool. Well, last question for you. If I could give you all power and you could snap your fingers and innovate one thing in the construction industry, what would you pick to innovate? You know, um, I have an easy answer. I think it's, it's safety. You know, I, I, I find it's the one thing that we can all agree upon, like whether it is physical safety, mental safety. Um, there's just, you know, it, these are people that are giving so much of their time and energy to build our communities, right. To build our livelihoods, build our society. And, you know, I remember going to see the Hoover dam and they had the stats of how many people died mm. and that that was like acceptable. Right. That was like, that was just like built into the budget, so to speak. Right. And we look at it now and we're like, people are still dying. And then, you know, and then you throw like mental health against that and it's like even worse. So I just think that um, we don't give enough credit for the work that the people put into, uh, into this stuff. And instead we want to like, you know, we want to idolize Elon Musk. And then there's these people that are doing that really matters, you know, building the kids, the schools that our kids work, go to school in, you know, stuff like that. And so, um, if I could snap my fingers and make, um, make our industry safe, that's what I would do. It's a great one. It's a great one for sure. Yeah. All the points that you just said, I totally 
totally agree with. Um, yeah, well, we're going to snap and make that happen. <laughs> uh, KP, th thanks so much for, for taking the time and, and joining the show today. Absolutely. It's good to see you. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, when developing a technology implementation plan, it is important to build in guardrails that provides people some level of autonomy while also maintaining consistency across the organization. I liked KP's thought on basically creating an internal app store of the various options people could use. Second take, collaborate, engage, listen. Those are three keywords that are required in order to get the office and field aligned on the technology stack. Lose one of those and it's like cutting off a leg on a three-legged stool. It just doesn't work. And final take, good, clear communication is critical for implementation. Have a predictable cadence to take the guesswork out of why you are rolling out something new. Then make sure to tailor the benefits and messaging to the specific audience you are talking with. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asdi.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining the conversation to model the future on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an Applied Software Great Tech Group production. Copyright Applied Software Great Tech Group 2023.